It's good stuff, right? Beautiful. Wow. Well, welcome to New Day. Um, We are in a a sermon series that's really um, focused on this whole idea of extending the kingdom. And um, if you've been with us this year, you know we're working through the core values of the church. And one of those, um, as we finish out the year, is extending the kingdom. And uh, most of the messages in this um, series are going to focus on um, how do we extend the kingdom of God locally in Kalamazoo, through New Day, how do we do that in Southwest Michigan, and thinking about a very North American, U.S. Um, focus. But today's going to be a little bit different because we're going to think about extending the kingdom globally and the ways in which um, that's happening. Um, and God is doing some really amazing things around the world. And we just don't really get to hear that much about what God is doing around the world. And so today our focus is just a very kind of big big picture snapshot of what God is doing around the world. And um, I'm going to present a lot of information that's really focused on um, God's heart for the nations, what um, is happening with the church around the world. And I think in part it will encourage you because God is doing some great things around the world. But I think there's also some challenge with it as well. And um, we'll get to that part in just a little bit. Um, All throughout scripture, uh, we see that God consistently is a God who is concerned about all nations. That God is not just concerned with one particular nation. Um, Yes, he had the nation of Israel um, that he um, called his own people. But it wasn't just that their relationship would stay just between God and Israel. That relationship was to be an example to all the other nations. If we look in scripture, I just want to share like a couple of scriptures with you just as we get started this morning. Just to kind of as a reminder and just a refresher that God is a God who is concerned with all nations and with all people that they would know him. Um, In Genesis chapter 12, a very famous passage of scripture, God comes to Abram and he gives him a promise. And part of that promise, he says, I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great. You will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. Whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. All peoples on earth will be blessed through you. And this uh, proclamation, this promise by God early in Scripture, in Genesis chapter 12, was such um, a powerful message that the Apostle Paul in the New Testament said this was the gospel message that was proclaimed to Abraham uh, right here. And um, God is being... um, God is being... uh, God is really working with Israel, but he's working with them in a way that they are a light to all nations. Um, We see this a couple of other spots. I mean, there's lots of examples. I just picked a few from the Old Testament. In the law, Deuteronomy chapter 4, God is talking to Israel and and talking to them about observing the law. And he said to observe carefully because this will show your wisdom and understanding to the nations who will hear about all these decrees and say, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. Um, There's a... There's the, at the very um, heart of God working with the, his, uh, his nation Israel in the Old Testament is this idea that they were to be an example and a model relationship that all the other nations are observing and they're, they're judging and they're saying, um, is Israel's God really the God of all nations? 
And um, they needed to know that this God, that Yahweh was the God of all nations. And they saw that through how Israel and God um, interacted and how Israel lived before God. Psalm 113, verse 4. The Lord is exalted over all the nations. His glory um, above the heavens. Isaiah 2, 2. In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established. As the highest of the mountains, it will be exalted above the hills and all nations will stream to it. Again, just this Old Testament prophetic declaration of all nations uh, coming to the Lord. In Matthew 28, we have maybe the most famous kind of mission, kind of statement, um, proclamation, uh, where Jesus is ascending into heaven and he tells his followers, go make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And then in Revelation, um, we have a few different um, verses that talk about this, and I picked one of them, Revelation 7-9, where John is seeing this vision of the future, the culmination of all things, and um, he sees that there, there was a great multitude that nobody could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language standing before the throne and before the Lamb. And this is like the great um, vision of mission where uh, people from every nation, every people group, every tribe, every language come to know God that they have the chance to hear about Jesus and that they can come into relationship uh, with him. And we have a vision of this at the very end of Scripture. And so consistently, and I just this is just a really quick survey, but just to show you that it's not just one verse in Scripture that talks about going, that God has always had um, the nations and reaching all nations as a priority. So as we transition, I want to ask you this question. So if you were to imagine a Christian in the world today, who would you imagine? What type of person? What would they look like? And, uh, you know, if somebody came to you and said, hey, I want to, what does a Christian look like? What's a Christian? So I don't know who you thought of, but and it's, there's no right answer. But some people might think of somebody like this, like Billy Graham. Um, millions of people have seen Billy Graham on TV, online. He has preached to so many people. And you might think of somebody like this. This is a Christian. This, this image right here, this type of person embodies a Christian. For a lot of people around the world, it might be this person. It might be Pope Francis, um, somebody who um, is considered a church father by many, many millions of people around the world. You might think a lot of people, if you go somewhere, they might say somebody like this. And when you look at these two people, um, Billy Graham, North American, white, older male. You have Pope Francis, older male from Argentina. And you might think this is the embodiment of what it is, what a Christian looks like. And I would say that that's true probably about 100 years ago. And actually today, a typical Christian looks more like this. If you took the whole of the Christian population in the world and picked one person at random, they would much more li- they'd be much more likely to look like this person than either of these two people. And if you ask this person, where do you live? Like, what type of place do you live? They would most likely um, live somewhere that, that looked like this. Um, so that's, that's kind of where we are in the world today. And the gospel has gone out, especially in the last hundred years, and has reached so many people. Um, about, um, about 100 years ago, the year's 1910, There's a very, very famous uh, missionary conference that happens in the Scottish city of Edinburgh. 
And 1,200 church leaders and mission experts came together and they convened for a number of days and they basically talked about what is the future of mission? How can we see the gospel go to all nations? And um, from that uh, meeting and from that conference, a lot of things happened. But sitting in, in Scotland in 1910, those church leaders and missionary leaders could not have imagined in their wildest dreams what was going to happen in the next 100 years of church history. They could not have imagined the ways in which the gospel was going to go out into the nations and the shape of the church. And we're going to look at some of those um, things that have happened since um, that time period. And it means that um, the nature of the church itself globally has really changed dramatically in the last 100 years. So um, a typical Christian today, like we're talking about, is typically young, they're typically living in poverty, more likely to be female than male, and they're probably living in Africa or Latin America. Do you remember the year 1980? You don't have to say if you remember the year 1980 or not. Some people do, some people don't. That's fine. This is not a confessional. You do not have to say if you remember the year 1980. The year 1980, there were two really important things that happened as it relates to the global church. And they happened, and you probably didn't notice, and that's fine. That's why you come to church, to learn about what God is doing in the world. But two really, really important things happened. For the first time in hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years, there were now more Christians in the world who were not white than were white. And this was a, this was a very symbolic tipping point in global Christianity, because for so many centuries, uh, white Christians were the majority, and they were trying to see the gospel go out to different nations. And the second thing that happened uh, in 1980 is when you looked at all of the Protestant denominations, Pentecostals became the largest single denomination. So these trends had been happening for a long time. They had been coming. But 1980, these two things happened right around the same time. And it marked, just in a very kind of symbolic sense, it's a great transition that was happening in the global church. So if you were alive in the 1800s, and you wanted to talk to a Christian, or you wanted to know where Christians lived, 99% of them lived in Europe and North America. Only 1% lived in Latin America, Africa, or Asia. Over the course of 100 years, we see that not that much changed. 90% of Christians, just over 100 years ago, live in Europe or North America. And only 10% of Christians around the world live in Latin America, Africa, and Asia. By 1979, it's 50-50 remember that year 1980 that was the tipping point where it would have gone 49 51 where are we at today some people think that 26 percent is actually too high some people say it's about 15 percent of christians globally live in europe and north america isn't that great imagine you're in 
that missionary conference in 1910 and somebody says, just over 100 years from now, or about 100 years from now, it's going to be totally turned around. They could not have even imagined that scope of change in such a time period. But it's not only where Christians live that has really changed in terms of just the sheer numbers of Christians. It's the types of Christians themselves have changed dramatically. When we look at this chart, we see in 1900, there were lots of Baptists, lots of Anglicans, and no Pentecostals. Right? Azusa Street hasn't happened yet. Right? There's no, there's no Pentecostals. That wouldn't have made sense. If you said you're a Pentecostal Christian, I don't even know what that means. There's no frame of reference for that. 1980, we see there's over 50 million Baptists around the world. There's over 50 million Anglicans, over 50 million Pentecostals. By the year 2000, 110 million Baptists, 76 million Anglicans, over 400 million Pentecostals. And today, they estimate there's over 500 million Pentecostals, adding more than 20 million people a year, 55,000 people every day. They think, but it's kind of hard to track because it's growing so fast. So not only in the last 100 years has the center of Christianity shifted from here and gone to places like Latin America and Africa, but also the type of Christian has changed dramatically. Or 100 years ago, you were more likely to be a Baptist or an Anglican or a Presbyterian. Today, you're more likely to be a Pentecostal or a Charismatic. So God is doing some amazing things and has done amazing things just in the last 50 to 100 years. If you look at this chart, um, the top, the very, very top three bars show the growth of the evangelical church, the um, Pentecostal church, and the charismatic renewal churches. And you can see that they're growing way faster than the overall world population growth. They're also growing faster than a lot of the mainline Protestant church growth. And they're growing faster than uh, any of the other uh, world religions. Now, if you take all Christian churches together, Islam is the fastest growing religion in the world, more than Christianity. But when you isolate out the mainline denominations and Roman Catholic Church, and you look at evangelical, Pentecostal, and charismatic, you can see that growth is happening a lot faster. So there are some really incredible things that are happening around the world. And these are some just very large numbers to get our heads around. I want to share just a couple of insights with you to just give you an idea of what this looks like, maybe what this feels like in different places around the world. So today, Sunday, we're gathered for worship. It's very possible that today, Sunday, there were more Christians who went to church in China than in all of Europe. That's remarkable because in 1970, there were no official churches in China. And today, there may be as many as 100 million believers. There may be more. It's really hard to know. Traditional denominations that used to send missionaries to different countries now have uh, less people worshipping than the countries they send missionaries to. So if you think about the UK, the Anglican Church sent missionaries to places like Ghana, Nigeria, South Africa. There's now way more Nigerian uh, Anglicans than there are British Anglicans. Way more. And you see, these, um, you see this come up sometimes if you follow the news. Um, the Anglican Church tries to make um, decisions that will influence the whole church. And you have um, the largest group of delegates come from Nigeria and a kind of a small number come from North America, and yet, who wants to drive the conversation? 
often it's American and, and Europeans that are so used to being in the driving seat, and yet all of these Nigerian Anglicans show up and say, well, actually, we, we want a voice. And that's the global church today. There are more Presbyterians that worship in Ghana and West Africa than there are in Scotland. There are way more Pentecostal Christians in Brazil than here in the U.S. Uh, in the U.K. now, there are over 15,000 full-time missionaries who come and serve uh, to try to reach the British uh, culture. They're mostly coming from Asia and from Africa. The largest congregation in Europe is in Kiev, pastored by a Pentecostal from Nigeria. And so the whole result is that the center of gravity has shifted from Europe and North America and has moved to Africa, to Asia, and to Latin America. So you might argue that the most important change in the Christian faith in the last century has been this huge demographic shift away from traditional centers in Europe and North America. And it's evident Christianity can no longer be regarded as a Western religion, if it ever was. It's a global religion of which the Western church is only a small fraction. So it used to be that um, when you thought of missions, you thought of um, people who left places like the U.S., like places like here, and they uh, would go somewhere in Africa or they might go to Asia. And that we went and brought the gospel message with us. And it was one-way traffic, right? That we would go and, uh, and we would proclaim the gospel and they would hear. Well, today that still continues. But in addition to people going from Europe and going from North America, people are now coming from what we would call the receiving nations or the host nations and are coming back to us. And you now have missionaries that are going from every nation to every nation. Missionaries are now being raised up in places like Korea and Brazil, and they're going to the nations. So no longer is mission one-way traffic from America and Europe to the rest of the world. And it's good for us to hear that. It's good for us to know that. The gospel has been planted and people have been raised up, and they are now in turn going to different places around the world. So let's look regionally at some different places around the world. We'll just do a very, very quick kind of journey around the world here. Sub-Saharan Africa in 1900. And 1900 is kind of a benchmark year because of that conference that met in 1910. They had a lot of data from around the year 1900. So in mission studies, that's used as a real kind of um, marker. So in the year 1900, less than 10% of the population in sub-Saharan Africa is Christian. Today, they estimate it's over 60%, which is about half a billion people. Um, one of the things with, um, with, with sub-Saharan Africa and their churches and their faith is that they're really having to work to um, untangle um, what is uh, maybe authentic Christianity from the colonialism that came came in. So if you know in history that, you know, European nations came in and, um, and, and colonized large parts of Africa. And so they brought in language and railroads and education. They brought in a lot of things and they brought in religion. They brought in Christianity as part of that. Well, now the um, indigenous, the um, African church is trying to figure out, okay, what, what is the, what is the gospel message and what's European culture? And we got to figure out 
what that is, and we've got to hold on to the gospel and make it authentically our own. We have to make it authentically African. There are African ways of thinking about the Bible. There are African ways of thinking about theology and culture that are really important for us to figure out. And that's a huge challenge. And you know what makes it more difficult today? When we go and we show up and we say, oh yeah, this is how you do it. There's one way to do ministry and this is it. Well, where did we learn to do ministry? Right here. Maybe it works for us. Maybe it doesn't. Maybe they have things that they could teach us. There are a lot of like really important social issues in all of these different regions. And in sub-Saharan Africa, dealing with... Um, you know, dealing with just the levels of poverty is something that the church is dealing with. Things like the AIDS um, epidemic, corruption in government, and also the migration of the poor, um, especially going into cities. And so there's a lot of um, poor that are moving into urban areas to try to you know, find a way to, um, to really improve their, their life and to seek opportunity. And these are issues that the church is you know, really involved in having to think through because no church exists in a cultural vacuum. You know, no church exists just completely isolated from its culture. Or if it does exist isolated from its culture, that's a dangerous place where the church is deluded itself, that it's isolated. And so the church needs to be engaged in these issues around the world. One thing that's interesting about sub-Saharan um, Christian life is that when they open up the Old Testament, they see stories in the Old Testament, they see a way of life that is very familiar to them. They don't have to cast their minds back and think, gee, I wonder what it was like to live in a mostly agrarian society where lots of sacrifice happened and there's all of these different systems in place. That's what they, that's what they know. So my question would be to us, if there's a pastor, a church leader, a theologian who is African and understands the Old Testament lifestyle much better than I do, how can we learn from that person? How can we learn from African theologians, from African pastors? Because they probably have a lot of really good things to teach us about what the Bible is saying. That's just a thought. In Asia, in 1900, there were about 22 million Christians, 2% of the population. There's been a lot of growth in Asia in terms of overall numbers of people coming into the church. It's grown to 360 million, but you can see the percentage has not grown up that much. 8% of the population, they estimate, is Christian. Now, Asia is really important in the 21st century because Asia um, has... Um, 55% of the world's population and a relatively small percentage of Christians. Three of the largest non-Christian religions are all rooted in Asian society. Islam, Buddhism, and Hinduism all have their roots um, in Asian culture. Seven of the ten largest cities in the world and over 200 megacities are in Asia. So urban ministry is becoming increasingly important in Asia. Aside from the overall number that 8% of Asian, um, the total Asian population is um, Christian, there, it's important to know that um, that's a really, um, that population is concentrated in certain pockets of Asia. It's not widespread. So there are some countries in Asia where there's very, very, very few Christians and other countries where there are a lot more. So uh, South Korea, for example, um, there are a lot of Christians in South Korea. In fact, the um, largest uh, church in the world is in South Korea, in Seoul. It has over 830,000 members. And um, there are a lot of missionaries going from Korea. That's one example. But then you have places like Japan that we're a little bit more familiar with, less than 1% Christian. 
the Philippines has a lot of Christians. Um, South Korea, as I mentioned. And then the growth that we're seeing in China is unlike anything that has been seen in human history. The number of Christians that are coming to faith in China is just um, beyond anything that anyone has ever seen before. So you have growth in Asia, but it's kind of um, uneven. And Asia will be an increasingly important um, part of the world um, as the 21st century um, goes forward, both in terms of just the overall numbers of people in Asia, but also with China and India and countries like that that are rising in importance. Uh, ministry in um, in Asian context, um, again, there's um, a lot of disparity between the rich and poor. There's a lot of poverty in um, large parts of Asia, and they're dealing with things like drug trafficking, um, sex trafficking, and um, fighting um, AIDS and different diseases. And so, again, thinking about in what way is the church growing, in what way is the church involved in its own context, there are lots of issues like this that the church is getting involved in. And I understand this is like really big picture, but it's just to give you today a snapshot of what's happening around the world. Latin America was reached by Roman Catholic missionaries in the 1500s, so it's a little bit different. Um, about 75% of the population would consider themselves to be Roman Catholic, and yet less than 15% ever attend church. Um, over 80% live in poverty um, of the total population in Latin America. And uh, the Roman Catholic Church has been um, so ingrained in the cultures of Latin America that people see it as more of a problem than a solution. So when people are trying to think about how do we overcome um, inequality in our society, how do we overcome injustice, how do we overcome all of these ways that our societies have um, emerged, they see the Catholic Church as part of the institutional problem rather than part of the solution. And so that's provided an opening for, um, for the evangelical church. Um, and so you can see in, uh, in 1940, there were about a million evangelicals. Uh, today, there are over 90 million. So that's, that's huge growth, just in terms of number. And of that 90 million, about 75% are Pentecostal. So there has been tremendous growth in um, the evangelical church, and especially the Pentecostal church, um, throughout Latin America. But it's a particular type of challenge that this presents because Latin America, um, because it's so Catholic in many ways, the evangelical church, as it grows in number and it grows in influence, is trying to figure out how do they position themselves in a culture that already has a Christian presence. And so evangelical church leaders and theologians, they're having to figure out how do we um, have an authentic evangelical voice that is distinct and different from a Catholic voice. They may be working on the same issues together. They may have the same values at different points. But how do they not compete against each other that um, detracts from the overall name of Christ? And so they're having to figure out kind of how to do that. Um, there are a lot of um, social issues as well in Latin America uh, that are important um, to know about as well. And so, um, again, um, high levels of poverty. Um, the drug trade is, is um, a, a really big problem in certain um, parts of Latin America, um, as well as um, corruption in government and, um, and different institutions. And there's a real need in Latin America for trained leaders and for pastors to get theological education and for um, deeper discipleship. There's also a big challenge with something called the prosperity gospel, um, which I will get into in just a little bit. But that's something that um, especially we see um, as a problem in Latin America. The Middle East and North Africa. So I don't know if you know, but the first 600 years of church history, the church thrived in North Africa. 
I mean, that was, if you wanted to know where the action was in terms of the church, North Africa was where the, the best thinkers in the church were. That's where great theological debates were happening. That's where all of this amazing church growth and just everything was North Africa. Um, amazing church thinkers um, like Tertullian and Cyprian and Athanasius and Jerome and Augustine were North Africans who have greatly shaped our understanding of theology. The Nicene Creed that we just read this morning, figuring out that, that Christ is of the same substance of the Father, that was, that was Augustine. That was, that was North African Christianity working itself out, and we're still shaped and influenced by that. In the 7th century, Muslim armies came in, and drove out the Christian population, and the Christian population has been on a decline really ever since. Um, so today they estimate only about 5% of the population is Christian, and that number is not expected to rise. Um, it's a really, it's a difficult um, part of the world um, to be a Christian. Um, they estimate that there's about 18 million Christians who are dispersed among 330 Muslims. And if you follow recent events like what's happening in Iraq and, things, and, and places like that in the Middle East, you'll know that these are challenging times to be a Christian, really difficult times to be a Christian in this part of the world. And yet, if you want an example from today of Christians who are remaining faithful and um, are preserving a church presence in a very, very difficult part of the world, then this would be a region that you could look at and to understand the history and understand um, what they're persevering, um, the conditions under which they're persevering. Um, the Coptic Christians in Egypt, for example, would be one group that you could look at. And to see the legacy of the Coptic Christians in Egypt is an amazing lesson in history and also up to the current day. Okay, so we turn the last region, Europe and North America. Okay, as I mentioned, these are traditionally the sending nations. We send our missionaries, we send the gospel overseas, and we hope to reach all of those other nations that don't know about Jesus. Well, what's happening today? The church is in decline in North America and Europe. Today, um, less than 25% of the population ever attend church, let alone regularly. Uh, even though 75% of people will probably call themselves Christian. If you stop people in the street in Europe and North America, are you Christian? They estimate about two-thirds of people, or uh, three-quarters of people would say yes. So, we spend a lot of time kind of thinking at New Day and talking about how do we reach our culture? How do we reach the North American culture? And that's really not the main focus of today's message. Today's message is more about what's happening in the world globally. But I want to make one comment about why the church is in decline in Europe and North America. And that is that there are many kind of reasons that over the last 100 years in particular, there have been many forces and ways of thinking that have really pushed us in Europe and North America to privatize our faith. Where faith used to have a, a really strong public voice, Christians used to have much more of a voice into shaping their culture. People wanted to know what Christians thought. Christian leaders and pastors would be able to shape their communities and society much more um, a much wider scale. And over the 20th century, faith has become a very privatized phenomenon where people today say, it's okay if you believe in God. It's okay if you're a Christian. Um, it's okay if you're passionate about that faith. Just don't share it with anyone. Keep it to yourself. And what has happened is our faith has become very privatized, where uh, we're encouraged to just keep it inside. 
and if other people believe their thing, then that's fine that they believe their thing and we believe our thing. And um, don't be too public with it. And that's culturally kind of where we have come to. And that's the reality that we live in, in our culture, as we think about the extending the kingdom and the gospel. But that is more where we live on a regular basis. And today is more about what's happening with the church around the world. Well, you might say, um, why is the church growing so strongly in all in these different places around the world? And I'll touch on these just very, very briefly. It's a hard thing to study exactly why this is happening. You know, if somebody said to you, um, here's some time and money, I want you to go and find out why the gospel is expanding in all of these countries around the world. I mean, where would you start, right? And so they try to talk to different church leaders and they look at numbers and they kind of look at all of this. And these are four reasons uh, that mission scholars have come up with to kind of at least help explain why all this is happening. So one is um, zeal for the Lord. Um, Christians in a lot of what we call the majority world, which is, you know, the Christians in Latin America, Asia, Africa, they are passionate about their faith. And you can tell, one way you can tell they're passionate is by their worship services that are usually very long, very noisy. You often don't really know what's going on, but they are passionate when they worship. And if you've ever been overseas and been in a worship service, there's a lot of noise, there's a lot of fervor. And that's just one example of the passion they have for their faith. They, um, they are then uh, very, very willing to go out and share that passion with others that they know. That they have a Christian faith that's very vibrant and they want to go out and share the gospel message. They have a Christian life that is shaped by expectancy and faith. That when they pray, they fully believe that God is going to answer them. If you are a Christian in um, a rural area in sub-Saharan Africa and your child gets sick, well, you may not be able to access a doctor. You may be able to, but you might not. And so um, if you cannot access medical care for whatever reason, you are going to convene Christians that you know. You're going to get the church to gather together and you'll pray and you'll pray and you'll pray and you'll expect that God will heal that child. And we see and we hear about story after story after story where God is doing signs and wonders, where God is appearing in, in dreams to people, where God is showing up in, in visions. People are having visions where people are, are hearing God speak to them. Um, there are many stories from places like Egypt where Muslims are seeing Jesus come to them in a dream. And then they go and they find a local pastor and they say, Jesus appeared to me and he told me to come and talk to you. So God's spirit is at work in really amazing ways around the world. And then finally, sacrificial faith. Christians are living around the world with this idea of sacrificial faith, that your faith costs you something. We are not very good at this. Our culture encourages us to seek security and comfort. Find as comfortable a lifestyle as you can. Make yourself as comfortable and secure as possible. And then take out insurance to make sure that that doesn't change. This is not a money lesson. All right? This is just an idea of how our culture thinks. That we value comfort, safety, and security. And yet, for a lot of Christians around the world, they have no guarantee of comfort, safety, and security and they're willing to make sacrifices for their faith. I'll give you one example. Um, in China, uh, the Chinese um, house church 
are um, looking to raise up 100,000 missionaries to go to the Middle East. Um, Chinese Christians are saying, hey, we know what it is to go to prison, sometimes for a really long time. We know what it is to be tortured for our faith, um, to be separated from our families. Uh, we know what it is to go without food. We know what it is to go without sleep. We know what it is to suffer for the gospel. So um, we're going to raise up 100,000 people just like us who know what it is to suffer for the gospel. And we'll go to the Middle East, to some of the most difficult places in the world to reach with the gospel. And we consider all of our ordeals in China to be perfect training to go to the Middle East. And they say, you American Christians, you are in no fit shape to go to the Middle East. When have you suffered in prison for the gospel? So these are some of the things that are happening around the world as we see the growth of the church and the spread of the gospel. Now, I don't want to give you the impression that it's all just like they have everything perfectly together and there are no issues. I want to just really briefly, as I finish here, just talk about some of the, um, some of the challenges that do exist in um, the church, different parts of the world. And the first is an abuse of, of power or abuse of authority. A lot of church leaders and pastors around the world are very young in spiritual terms, like they have not had a lot of formal training in the Bible or theology, if they've had any. Um, in many cases, the pastor or church leader is the person who became a Christian first, and so they may have become a Christian like two minutes before the next person. And so they're put into these leadership roles, and imagine if somebody came to you and said, oh, you are now our spiritual leader. Tell us what to do. You read the scriptures for us. You help us. You help us to know how to worship. And people suddenly say, you know, you say something and people do it. You know, our fallen nature, it would be hard to not have, you know, at least some areas where you're tempted to abuse that authority. Right. If there's no other structure in place to help you. And so, um, that's something to be aware of, to pray into that as, as young leaders in the church around the world are being raised up into leadership, that they would lead from a place um, that really reflects servant leadership, humility, that there will not be um, abuses of authority. Um, making converts and uh, uh, making um, disciples, and not just converts, where people really come into a deep relationship with God is something with the church that's growing so fast. It's really difficult. Like people are trying to figure out how do we really make um, disciples, like true followers of Christ. Um, I mentioned earlier prosperity theology. So this is this is a difficult one because a lot of places around the world, uh, especially where the Pentecostal church is growing, the message is. Um, come to God and he will give you whatever you want. Uh, just give enough money in the offering as a seed of faith. Sow that seed of faith and God will give you whatever you want. And there are a lot of um, parts of the world where this message is being preached. And people are encouraged to give financially towards their local church or to, their, to the ministry. And there's an expectation that God is absolutely 100% guaranteed to answer their prayers. Now, the challenge is we do know that God is a God who gives and provides and blesses, right? So it's not all wrong, but it's enough of a twist 
where you begin to see God as like some divine ATM where you've put in the right pin code, where you pray the right prayers, you give enough money, and you're guaranteed to get a return. And it's enough of a distortion of the nature of who God is that it's hurting congregations and Christians around the world. Because if for whatever reason their prayers are not answered, they don't get fabulously wealthy, they don't get that new job, they don't move up socioeconomically, can be a real challenge to their faith. It's especially difficult because so many of these Christians live in poverty. And when your pastor says, just give even a little bit of what you have and you're guaranteed to make a lot of money, that's a tough message to resist for a lot of people as they're coming into the church. Then finally, social transformation. The church never exists in a vacuum. It never exists in isolation. And so churches are navigating all of these cultural and social issues, whether it's um, poverty, whether it's drug trafficking. But the church around the world is trying to figure out how do we be an authentic Christian witness in the midst of our cultures where all of these different things are taking place. So finally, our role... Um, I would say just learning more about what's happening in the global church is a good first step. And then that allows us to pray into these different situations. So we have a lot that we can learn about the church globally. We have a lot we can learn from the church globally. And trying to find voices from different regions of the world who can talk to us about what it is to be an authentic Christian. Um, I think to being willing to go, whether it's a short-term mission trip or even to consider going for a longer time period that we do have a role to play in going overseas and going to different nations and saying, we will come alongside you. We will partner with you. How can we help you? That can be a really tremendous way to help giving. It's also important. We support many different missionaries and groups around the world right here through New Day. That's another way that you can help. If you are looking for a good resource in terms of um, that prayer component, There's a book called Operation World that will allow you to pray through, um, in one year, all the different regions of the world. So we're going to close out here. I'm going to leave those resource slides up there, that slide up for you. If you are interested in finding out more, I'll leave that up there so that you can can see that. But let's stand as we close out our service this morning. So this has been, I know it's a lot of information and it's a lot to kind of take in. And it's good to be reminded of what God is doing around the world. That our experience of the church and of who God is, is not, doesn't represent all people. It's not the totality of what it is to be the church. So we'll just take a minute as we close and we'll just briefly pray. And we'll just, um, just close our service um, out this morning. So, Father God, we just thank you so much for what you are doing around the world. We thank you so much for your blessing that you are pouring out, that people are being drawn into the kingdom, God, that people are being drawn into the church. God, through the faithful witness of Christians around the world, by your Holy Spirit, God, we just pray that you would continue to work in the lives of Christians around the world to bring more people into your kingdom. We thank you so much for all that you have done, God. We just pray for more 
just pray for a greater harvest, God, to come into your church. God, pray for wisdom for leaders, pastors, ministers around the world, leading congregations, God, that you would help equip them to lead your people. And God, we just pray for ourselves that you would help us to know our role. What is our place? How can we help? How can we partner with those around the world, God, who are serving you? God, I pray you would just speak to us again. Just let us see what our role might be. God, we thank you for this time today, this opportunity to worship together as a church. I pray that you would bless each one of us this morning, we pray. In your name, amen.